Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today, I want to talk to you about the creator economy and a tonal shift that I've noticed within it. Before I get to that, let me share a few built-in public updates around my software as a service projects. Now, Podline, podline.fm, my voice messaging thing for podcasters, is slowly getting users. I get a couple signups every now and then, but it's not seeing much use. It's probably because I've done zero marketing outside of the founder space where I'm building this in public, where I'm sharing all the updates just like this one with my fellow founders. And that space, the founder space, is quite distinct from the high-profile podcast that I want to reach. My podline is meant to help very established, quite popular podcasts to reach the audience. There is some overlap in the indie hacker space. I think there are several podcasts there where the founders have built quite the audience, but it's not my main like target for an audience, right, for a customer base. So that is one of those cases where building the public is kind of two-sided. One is the back-end side, it's the business side, and the other side is the customer-facing front-end side, and I haven't done much work there. And that's kind of why I started building this other tool that I'm also kind of building in public and sharing a lot of information about this podcast scanning application. And I can now announce that this actually has a name because I registered a domain and put like a blanket marketing page on there. It's called podscan.fm because I want it to be a scanner for podcasts. It's pretty simple. That's the current work in progress title for the thing. And let me share with you a couple challenges along the way over the last week or so of building a tool that supposedly scans all podcasts everywhere for keywords. That's the idea, right? It's effectively a Google alerts for your brand or whatever thing you want to look into your competitors or whatever in all podcasts, English speaking podcasts that are released all the time. And this takes quite some backend configuration. It takes quite some architecture in the backend. I did not expect this initially because my initial thought was how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, indie hacker style. But I figured like transcribing a lot of podcasts at the same time takes some architecture to build. And for that, I needed to look into GPU architecture. Like not, it's not just servers where you have, you know, a database and some processing and some files being thrown around. You actually need a lot of computational power on a graphics processor, like a vector-based computational stuff. Because most of the, the AI things that I integrate into this, the, the, it's not machine learning per se, but it's like transcription based on, a, on an LLM called Whisper that OpenAI released for free. A lot of that optimally happens on a GPU. It's just so much faster than anything that is thrown at CPU. Even though there are versions that exist, I'm going to get to this in a second, but GPU is what you need. And to be able to run uh, a VM on AWS or Google, Google Cloud or other services like Vulture, you need to be verified because there, there's so much abuse in this space. And I did not expect this when I went into building AI-based tools. There's so much like Bitcoin mining that people do and really, really intrusive things that and then they don't pay, right? They they, uh, they put some fake credit card in there, they mine for a month, and they don't pay the actual fee. That happens a lot, which is why AWS and every other provider that offers virtual machines instances with their GPU attached have a pretty rigorous verification process that is part of this. And I fell into this. Now, fortunately, I have some sway, I guess. I have my Twitter audience that I've built over years now that is sizable and among which are some people who work for companies that can help me back channel these things. Or I just have a following that is big enough for the media people 
at this company to figure this out. So this has been a really, really useful thing, my audience, just to get these things kind of sped up a little bit, escalated, which is, I guess, an indictment of the system as it stands. Right? It's quite bureaucratic, and only if you have a side channel can you actually get through it. But yeah, verification, that's a big thing. If you want to just quickly ramp something up, you better expect there to be a a couple of things thrown in your path, and the verification is one of them. It's not too hard, right? All I needed to do to verify these things is to point to my public communication about the project, just to show them that it's real. Because what they don't want are people who fake things and then Bitcoin, right? You know, then start mining or start not paying the bills. So that's something I, I fell into. AWS Vulture is another service that I, I found that I actually have already been verified at. I'm still working through my AWS certification or verification at this point as we speak. That might be done in a couple of days, but who knows? Um, Vulture, I got credit, so I can now rent a CPU unit, which is going to cost me like $300 a month just for one uh, GPU-based VM, which is quite some money. Um, I'm going to get in a second to how many of them I actually need to parse all podcasts everywhere. But let me just talk about one other thing that I also needed to be verified for, which was Paddle, like payment provider. Usually I go with Stripe with these kind of things. But for this service, as I'm turning it into a business besides Podline, right? Podline and Podscan are both going to be businesses that I run because they're just so adjacent in terms of what they do te te technologically. And because I can use one for the other as a kind of dog fooding exercise, the Paddle integration that I have always hoped for finally landed this month. And that is the Laravel Spark integration. Laravel, the framework that I use for these projects, has these kind of tools in their ecosystem. And Spark is their payment provider integration. It used to be a thing that only supported Stripe. You could install Spark. It's a paid product. I think it's $99 one-time fee for a single project or $250 for like however many projects you want forever, which is kind of cool. So that just integrates those payment providers really reliably into your product, right? You just install it once in a, in a require um, command and then it immediately pulls everything together. It puts the database tables in, it connects to your Stripe account. If you put the credentials in, it, it synchronizes all the customers' emails and names and it puts the products in there if you need it. And it's it's really cool. It's a really, a really useful tool to not have to build yourself. And, and I certainly don't want to touch anything that touches money. I want this to be something that other people who are better coders and more versed in these kind of APIs than me do for me, which is why I pay for software. It's very simple. Other people write better software than I do, and I pay for this. And finally, they support Paddle, which is important because Paddle is a merchant of record, where Stripe is just a payment gateway. So with Stripe, you have to deal with all the taxes and that stuff yourself. They make it a bit easier than it used to be, but Paddle is a platform that effectively sells your subscriptions for you. So if I use Paddle, I don't have to deal with taxes at all. I get what they call a reverse invoice where they sell products on my behalf and most of that money, percentage-wise, I kind of invoice them or they invoice themselves for me and send it to me. That's kind of what the reverse thing is. So it's, it's really, really useful because that effectively means that however many customers I have, I have 12 invoices a year. And for tax purposes, for a solopreneur, that makes a huge lot of difference. I don't have to deal with taxes and I only have 12 documents that I need to file, right? I mean, obviously, I have more expenses and all that. But compared to Stripe, where for each customer that I have, 
however many transactions I have with them in a year, that's the number of invoices I have per customer. And then I have a thousand customers, so I have 12,000 invoices. That becomes complicated. Paddle makes it a bit easier. I'm a fan of both platforms. Stripe makes it super easy. Paddle a bit less because they have a verification process. Because as they sell your product, they better make sure they sell a thing that they can sell, should that legally are allowed to sell, and feel comfortable selling. And when I put my name in the new account there and I put my, my bootstrapfounder.com domain, right? I, when my blog lives, just because I didn't have a domain for Podscan yet, they declined it. They said, no, your blog, like you're, you're selling consulting services and you have a store with like merch, which uh, we will not sell, like physical products we do not do. We All we do as Paddle is like e-commerce stuff that is purely digital or SaaS or, you know, that those kind of things. Never ever consulting and never ever physical products. And I was like, all right, I guess for this purpose, I need to put up a marketing page, which I then did. So uh, potscan.fm is the marketing page. I think it's it's the product life, but it's not really running just yet. So if you sign up, if you want to, um, there's not going to be anything there. I will launch it in due time. You can probably get an account there or whatever, but that wouldn't make much sense because the backend is... It's in development, right? That's what it is. You're going to see a product that is highly in development. I I will keep registrations active just to see what happens, but I, I don't expect people to use it as it's not usable at this point. I'm still working on it locally as a development tool as I'm figuring out the whole um, scanning and transcribing podcasts in the cloud thing, which is the next uh, thing that I want to talk to you about because I was experimenting with GPU and CPU transcription, which for anybody who wants to do AI things is pretty important, right? If you and your next business has some kind of AI component and you don't want to just pay open AI for every single thing that you sent their way, look into if you can run this locally or on a VM instance that has the proper hardware. Sometimes these things can be run almost without an issue just on a CPU, on a computer that doesn't even have a graphics card. You can still run large language models or transcription models such as Whisper. It's just going to be a bit slow, but if you don't need much of it, it's perfectly fine. But I do need much of it. I did some napkin math. Um, there's this rough number for, in my case, of English-speaking episodes of podcasts that are released in any given day. It's probably around 10,000. Might be more, um, depending on what kind of podcasts you look into. Like There are certain podcasts out there that I wouldn't even think qualify for me looking for keywords in them. Things like the like daily religious prayers that are just repeated the same thing every single day with a little bit of variation. Not sure if I even need to scan these, but let's just say there's 10,000 episodes a day. And I went through my database over the last couple of days. I just pulled every single podcast I could and just started transcribing them. On average, they are like 50 minutes in length, which is quite high. But, you know, that's the average that I have. So that means if you, if you do some math, um, that's kind of 50,000 or let's just say 48,000 for round make it to make it easier to round down and stuff. 48,000 minutes in a day in 24 hours, that's 2,000 minutes per hour. Divide both by 60, I guess, to get seconds per minute <laughs> um, is 2,000 seconds. Um, oh, sorry, not seconds per minute, but seconds per second is 2,000 seconds of spoken word per second. Okay, I guess like the math is kind of in, in that realm, right? So my GPU, my M1, 
on my laptop or not my laptop, my, my Mac studio does 120 of seconds of audio transcription per second, right? Just two minutes of audio I can transcribe per second, which is quite fast because it's on a GPU and it's accelerated using OpenAI Whisper's base model, which is super fast and still quite accurate. accurate. So to get to 2000 seconds of spoken words per second, I need 16 of these M1 Max, which obviously I don't have. And I don't really want to pay for 16 VMs in the cloud because they're quite expensive. I checked uh, a Cloud Vulture GPU instance is $300. And to have 16 of those means that I would pay, well, you know, a lot of money. It's like 40, 4,800, it's like almost $5,000 a month, which is still crazy to think that that's the ceiling to scan all podcasts everywhere, right? English speaking podcasts. Like you just need 5,000 bucks a month in expenses in GPUs. And that is all you need to deal with the incoming stream of audio. What I will do is to whittle down the numbers of things that I actually need to scan. I already started, I built a transcription checker, fortunately, and I learned this through um, the, the wonderful work that Justin Jackson and John Buda are doing at Transistor FM. I looked into the, the RSS feeds that that platform provides, which this podcast is on. So the, literally, I looked at my own podcast feed, the RSS feed for this, and I found a namespace in there. And that's the podcasting namespace. It's kind of a, an XML or an Atom namespace that defines a few things that podcasts can reliably put into their RSS feed and that they have information. Right? It's like, who's the host of the show? That kind of stuff. And also, is there a transcript for this show? And what format does it have? And where does it live? That is really cool. So I'm now checking the RSS feeds of the podcasts I ingest for PodScan if there is a transcript. And if there is a transcript, instead of downloading the audio and transcribing it myself, I'm using the transcript. Now, there's not too many of these. Not too many podcasts actually offer transcripts, unfortunately. But it's already cutting down on a transcription time that I do and need to do. The next thing I'm probably going to do is to be very careful about what category podcasts I actually ingest and to skip ones that are just way too long. Now, you know, those, those kind of shows, um, Hardcore History, where it's like an eight-hour podcast episode. I'm not, not going to transcribe this, um, at least not at this point. Right now, I'm, gonna, I'm building a tool, a keyword checking tool for regular podcasts, not, not series, not, not anything kind of cinematic, right? But regular shows where people talk about stuff and where people who want to do marketing in podcasts, through podcasts and with podcasts can find mentions of terms and phrases that they care about. And for that, I will limit myself to shows that are shorter or that are more regular than these kind of episodical things. I will also probably drop certain categories altogether, like the daily prayer category, or I, I'm not sure what else. I'm going to have to look into this. Going to get back to you on this in a week or two. Just going to try and figure out how I can reduce the number of podcasts that come into the system so I can reliably ignore a few of them, at least in the beginning stages, where I don't have 5K MRR yet to pay for this. Because the moment I can scan every podcast everywhere reliably and financially, you know, with the, the revenue that I make, then I will. But for now, Gonna check what needs to be the, the, the highest effort or what the, the lowest effort for the highest reward would be, right? That's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be um, fiscally responsible and just scrappy at this point. So, next up, um, I will, you know, skim 
the number of things that I ingest, and I'm going to rework my whole transcription server backend because I thought, huh, how am I going to build this? I, it's all on my on one machine right now. I'm going to pull it all apart and turn it into a queue system that I can just like dive into from backend systems, however many I built. Right? However many clones of the API transcription server I built, they will all go and fetch things from a central queue, work on it, and return it. That's the idea. So I'm still thinking about this. So that's my next step. And beyond that, outside of my SaaS efforts, I'm also preparing my talk on Daniel Vassallo's Small Bets community at the end of February, I think the last day of February, about building a media business. And that brings me to the topic that I really want to talk to you about today, because in looking at that media business landscape, I had a thought, and that thought is, or was, is the creator economy as it is now a misnomer? Are we misnaming the creator economy. Because when I think about creators and the effort and time that they spent on their work, it very much seems familiar to a nine to five job at this point. There are a lot of people on YouTube in particular, in the visual creator space, that are stopping right now because they cannot deal with the daily grind anymore. And that's really what it is for most people, daily grind. It's main focus at this point is just to retain the attention of the people that are watching or retain the attention of your readers or whoever it is. You want to keep people engaged. And without this attention, creators have very little because all the monetization things around creator businesses, they work on that number on how many people are actively engaged. If you have a newsletter, how many readers do you have? How many? What's the open rate? Right? How much the click rate? You need active engagement as a creator. It's not something that can hum along. You need to make sure that it always is on. And an artist needs people to consume their work. Right? Without attention, creators really have nothing there. Or to listen to music or read their books or whatever it is. You need people to actively do a thing. And you have to create something interesting to cater to your audience's attention. In a way, that's what a business is about. right? Serving people's desires with the products that they crave so that will compensate you for your work with money. But in the creator economy, you often need to grow before you can monetize. That's something that is very different from like a bootstrapped SaaS business as I'm trying to build it right now with Podline and Podscan. The moment money is coming in, you start using this revenue to foster further growth. But as a creator, you have to get to this critical mass of traction and interest before you can even ask for money. Um, the one one uh, example here is YouTube's monetization system. Right on YouTube, you have to have at least like a thousand followers or subscribers, and you have to have at least four hours of watched content in a month to be able to then monetize it. So you have to have a thousand people that are already interested in your work. So you have to put in all that effort to get to that point, and you have to convince them to watch a lot of your work. 400 hours, or it might even be 4,000 hours. It's it's uh, It kind of changes over time. YouTube has made a couple changes. I forgot how much it was for me, but it was a lot. And I was like, oof, you have to put all of this work in for free to be able to make some money, and you start with like making $1 a month or something. That is, you know, that's a lot. It's kind of similar to internships, where you just have to prove yourself before you're allowed to get a job. It's, it's pretty weird. You can see this in the creator economy as well. Um, it's just the rules of the systems that we work in are that you have to prove yourself first. 
Sponsors for newsletters aren't attracted until you have thousands of loyal readers. And the same goes for podcasts like this one. This challenge is the cold start problem, right? How do you get those first followers if you need time to create content, but also need money to sustain your life to be able to create it? So in, in, a, in a way, I think the term creator economy might be wishful thinking. What it truly is, is the attention economy. And this isn't new. Advertising, which is kind of they're focusing attention, has been playing with this concept for years. Attention is key. It's all about pay-per-click, not just paper impression, right? If you look into how those systems monetize, there's an active intentional component that they monetize on. The click matters because it shows people's willingness to invest their time and their focus on what we create. So how can we find attention and how can we make it money for our work? Can we have it make money for work? I think I'm lucky to have chosen a niche. That's creators, indie hackers, and those who want to build something meaningful. My my work isn't for people who just want a little side project. I think it is for people who want to build a business and a legacy. And focusing on this group has been a smart choice. It created alignment, a lot of alignment, because I know where people come from and I know where they want to go. And I can speak to this. And people see this in my work. Like they, they see this in how I communicate, what phrases I use, what terms I use. And a lot of successful creators out there start by finding a loyal audience in their chosen space, and they don't try to cater to everybody around it, but they focus on those who share their interest and share the common language. And even when they change over time, they pivot very slowly and keeping their audience engaged at the same time, pulling them along or pulling a majority of that audience along. Example. As an amateur musician, and I'm really amateur, I play the accordion really badly, and I recently got a couple synthesizers just to play and make some music. I follow many people on YouTube who make this music, who I can learn from. And I've seen careers change, which is really interesting, very slowly over years, from gear reviewers into other fields. That was one example that I have there as a, as a channel that I follow, I forget the name, but it, it's, it's just a, a guy who started out like reviewing microphones and reviewing like instruments and all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, getting the newest instruments in and like playing around with them and showing what they can do and get, maybe doing it in a paid capacity like as a sponsored thing with the company that made the instrument or just doing it because they hope to in the future get sponsorships from companies like this. It was really noticeable that there was a business behind it. Really interesting. But then they figured out, hey, all my musical talent that I put into just like showing how this keyboard works or whatnot, I could put into another kind of use and I could talk about what good songs are made of, what the structure is, how to make a song like this, where to find the samples, how to make a beat and all that kind of stuff. And you see these people slowly adding this content and just experimenting with it. It's really, really interesting. Like there was a, a video where the guy just talked about the song structure of a synthwave song and just explained it. And there was a video where they shared like the best plugins to make that kind of music. And you could see in the comments, them asking their audience, is this something that's interesting to you? Or what could I put into this to make it even more interesting? There was like active market research happening in the content that people created over time, very slowly, but they did create it over time. And it's kind of, career change is an interesting phrase because in in an economy like this is this how it's supposed to work <laughs> i really wonder but reviewing stuff is always an easy way to start if you have an expertise in an area like audio gear electronics photography you see this a lot in these fields as well and then over time you get into bigger and more aspirational content that is still related to your original field so that's how this works in um 
terms of you know focusing. We can focus on a specific audience first, provide valuable content for them, and then this will help you gain attention and allow you to grow, pivot, and then monetize your work. Um, over time, a lot of people stop doing the thing they initially did and move to something else. And that is perfectly fine. It's fascinating to see because not only do they go into different topics, people also start building businesses from there in the creator economy. Again, maybe a misnomer. The attention retention economy. Maybe that's what it is. A lot of these musicians that I uh, follow very actively start releasing little info products. They have their own plugins or they have settings for certain plugins that other people even produce and they start selling these. You have this in music where you have sample packs, you have this in photography where you have LUTs, like the, the lookup tables that people use to color, color grade the photos that they do and it's a certain kind of color warmth or a certain style, like vintage, whatever kind of color scheme you want. People sell these, these info products. It's a pretty interesting way of monetizing outside of the attention, right? Because as a YouTuber, you monetize pretty much through the attention that your videos get and the clicks and the ads that get played and all that if you focused exclusively on YouTube. If you have sponsors, people pay you for attention as well. But if you have a product to actually sell to people that is a, an, a result of your expertise, all of a sudden you kind of sidestep the necessity for this continued attention a little bit. You still need people to come in and, and buy it, obviously see it and buy it, but you sell something else but people's eyes on your content. And that I think is an important shift that I that is turning the creator um, kind of, I only create and people pay me for what I create in terms of content into this is a holistic media business that has a creator side and it has a product side. I think it's a, a pretty viable idea to think about it as a, you know, a more distinct kind of thing. So in the creator economy, you need a good reason for people to watch your work. Just because you think it's interesting, the thing you do, the thing you create, doesn't mean that others will think the same thing. Getting attention like this is super hard. And what I'm saying is that being creative isn't enough in the creator economy. Creativity has to capture attention. So you have to be creative at capturing attention. And if your creations resonate with your target audience, then your creativity is effective in getting the attention needed to make money from your work. So if you're starting as a creator and this seems overwhelming to you, just don't worry at this point. You can still build something great. Just make sure what you do is meaningful to a specific group of people and you slowly move into new fields over time. Knowing who you're creating for at any point in time helps your creativity shine. It, it attracts the right attention if, you, if you're aware of who you're doing it for and how. And finding ways to grab people's attention, that is the challenge, right? You have to be creative in showing that you understand them. People usually are drawn in when they feel a connection. They will have to think, this person gets us. They know our struggles and how we think. I'll give them a chance. That's when you succeed. That's when you get people's attention, when you earn people's attention, maybe more importantly, because you speak the same language, you speak to the same aspirations, you have the same challenges. That is what gets people to you. Being creative just for the sake of it might not be enough. So don't expect to make money from it because we live in an attention-driven world right now. The creator economy needs attention to thrive. Might as well be called the attention economy as it rightfully is by some people in marketing. But just understand that you have to find connection with people. 
that's what I'm thinking about when I'm preparing these these little media business workshops. I I want to make sure that the people who start a business in the media space understand how the dynamics in here work. Because you come from a technical background, very likely, if, if you do it like I do, you have no idea how the, the psychodynamics of this field work. Right? You think, if I build something really, really valuable, people will see it and they will allow me to find compensation. But that's not the case. It is about actually building something valuable and mostly tricking people into finding it interesting. And then actually getting their interest and helping them and making sure, oh yeah, that was actually a good choice to be tricked by this. It's quite bizarre. It's also the reason why we have YouTube thumbnails that are just stupidly loud in, in a visual way, right? You have to trick a person to come watch your video to figure out, oh yeah, that was actually quite useful. If you don't trick them into looking at it, somebody else will trick them into looking at theirs. So yeah, that's that's the attention economy in a nutshell. I think that's it for today. I'm just going to briefly thank my sponsor right now, Acquire.com. I recently talked to a founder who sold a business. Um, their, actually, their podcast episode is going to land uh, in a week. We dive into all of the, the whole sales process. It was really cool. $3.5 million sale. It's pretty, pretty substantial. And this conversation showed me just how important it is to be aware of all the options that you have as a founder. Most of us want to build businesses that keep putting money in our pockets forever. That's kind of the SaaS founder dream, I guess. We built this business that just keeps running and making you money. But entrepreneurship is hard. And there are so many reasons why our original intentions change at some point, right? At whatever happens, we are left with an asset that generates money, sure. But if there's misalignment, that will also create anxiety. And personally, I went through this quite intensely. I was mid-burnout when I sold my business. And I'm glad I sold because it solved both my financial problems and my mental health issues because I was rid of the thing that was causing me all this anxiety. So if for any reason beyond mental health, but also including it, you feel like your current business might turn from a profit engine into a kind of an anxiety generator, start preparing. Make it sellable. Document your processes. Check out Acquire.com because they have a lot of information about what buyers want to see in a, in a business. The Acquire team will help you set up yourself for success, pretty much. It's free to list. They've helped hundreds of founders already. Go to try.acquire.com slash Arvid and see for yourself if this is the right option for you. So, hey, thanks for listening to the Bootstrap Founder today. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you will find my books on my Twitter course that too. If you want to support me and this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel because, you know, that's a place that I get views on that would like your attention there. Get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, maybe more importantly, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. I really appreciate those. Makes a massive difference if you show up there for me because then the podcast will show up for you and people like you who want to fulfill their dreams and build something meaningful. Any of this will really help the show. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye-bye.